Welcome back to Trojan Talk. I'm Ryan Young, as always, joined by Max Brown, the former USC quarterback. I'm just going to say college football analyst now because you're really branching out this season, but always our Trojansports.com analyst, Max. How are you? I am doing great, Ryan. We're glad SC is, is 1-0 and by the, the hairs on our chin or whatever the term is, but walking away with the win, so no complaints on my end. You don't run a fan message board, so you don't really know how glad you could possibly be because there was there was one of two outcomes that were going to happen yesterday. And midway through the second half, I was just fearing just this miserable, miserable season where everyone was out on this team after game one and the whole season became a referendum on Clay Helton and the Helton hate took over. And I could, I could just see it all happening. I could feel it. It was already happening on the message board. I just thought we waited so long for this season. We waited 11 months, 10 months, whatever it was for this season, and it's going to be over in the game. And then somehow, some way, against all odds, USC comes back from 13 down in the final handful of minutes to win 28-27. Hey, you might have you might have to deal it. with uh, message boards, but I have to deal with live callers two hours after, an hour after the game. So I. Uh, I, I fair, was in the same fair. exact frame of mind as you, like in the third quarter, like, gosh dang it, I'm going to get calls all night asking about Clay as I work on a USC network, and that's never fun. So I uh, I totally level with what you're saying. <laughs> right. I mean, it, just to put in perspective how improbable this was, and, and I guess this is going to sound conflicting, when I saw this stat, I thought, that's not possible. And then, yeah, I thought back to it, I'm like, well, that actually seems pretty accurate. ESPN tweets out that with three minutes and eight seconds left, so right before the Brew McCoy touchdown, Arizona State, by their calculations, whatever algorithm they use, had a 99.8% chance of winning. And somehow uh, USC steals that game. We'll, we'll get into the comeback, but you know I've covered college football for 15 years now, and I've covered some wild games, some wild overtime games, I, I don't know if it's the wildest comeback I've, I've ever covered, but it has to be the most unlikely where I just felt this game is over. Like There's no chance here. Max, when did you actually think it was possible that UST could steal this game? When Drake London crossed the end zone with the, with, with the ball in his hands. Yeah, I mean... I was still. I mean, you're talking about two fourth down conversions late in those in in that game. I mean, those are. I mean, if you're an ASU fan, you have to absolutely be sick. And and one of my best buds is the radio guy for uh, for ASU. He played there, Jordan Simone. And we were texting on the side, and he's like, "You got to be kidding me!" Because I think SC, all of us in SC country, we realized how important this game was. But if you're an ASU fan, like the the task of beating USC. Like that, that that's huge. I mean, that's a, that's a program defining win for them moving forward, which is also why it's such a big win for SC. But yeah, I uh, I was very skeptical, very doubtful. Was still skeptical even when USC got um, the onside kick. But sure enough, I, I agree with the narrative that's kind of around the program. Of I mean, that's a game that USC would have lost last year, and there it's not always like you can quantify it or say this is why they would have won or this is why they would have lost but I think this year the ability to to kind of get gutsy and just find a way to win we all know SC's talent and even though the coaching staff might not be elite got out coached in areas in that game the reality is when you have when you have USC's roster 
And you put those players in a place to, to make a play. You put Amon Ra in a place to tip the ball. You put Brew McCoy in a, in a bicep curl in, in the pile underneath uh, to make something happen. He can do exactly that. And I think that's what we saw. Well, that's what we saw late in that game. Yeah, so I, I had actually – this happens a lot to me, it seems like. I had written the column earlier in the fourth quarter when I just thought all hope was lost for the Trojans. And then I totally redid it, obviously. But the phrase that I, I used in both, and I guess the way I phrased it in the final version, was that if USC lost that game, this becomes a zombie season where it's still happening, yeah. but there's, there's no life. That's one of the, the rare offshoots of this shortened seven-game season. We talked about it last week in the preview pod, is that there's no margin for error. And that's ironic to say, given that USC just had a ton of error and, and got a second chance, essentially, but they had to win that game. If they lose that game, not only is the is any playoff talk done, I mean, we're going to, to the Jim Mora playoff clip, but also the Pac-12 uh, South is, is pretty much done because Arizona State, where they had the tiebreaker, the head-to-head tiebreaker, I think that a lot of people think that they're the – other top contender in this division. We don't know what Utah is yet until we see it. So let's say that Arizona State is the next best team. Well, there's no way that they were going to lose two more games at, for USC to, to climb back ahead of them. So, so now you're playing for what? You're playing for 6-1 and one and maybe some bowl game if bowls happen. I mean, everything could have been gone just like that on Saturday, and yet now we talk – and not only is that not the case, but it's the opposite, where they've gotten past maybe their toughest challenge. Again, going to Salt Lake City is always tough for this program. It's been, it's been tough the last two years going to Utah, period, whether it's BYU or Utah. So I'm not at all overlooking that game. But we don't know what kind of team they have yet or what their COVID situation is going to be in a couple of weeks. Um, otherwise, USC plays a bunch of teams that all had losing records last year. So they really possibly cleared their biggest hurdle uh, to get to the Pac-12 championship game and then see what happens. And just to have such a dramatic pivot from one possible outcome to another in the first game is unheard of. But that's where we're at. Yeah, no, without a doubt. I think it's it's a good point by you to kind of bring up the greater Pac-12 South. And I'll start by saying you can – feel however you want to feel about this game that's the best ASU team I've seen probably since I was I was young yeah. at USC maybe that Mike Bercovici Jalen Strong team that had some NFL um, players on the back end the uh, safety that played for the Packers anyway that, that, that's a good ASU team that's an ASU team that's a lot better than last year I mean this isn't an ASU podcast but if I'm a if I'm a Sun Devil fan, like that offense and what they have going there, that is night and day more explosive, more creative than a year ago. I mean, a year ago they were the most vanilla offense in the team. A year ago they got beat up in the trenches. I think they beat up SC at times in the trenches this year. So that's a good ASU team. Um, wary of of saying a, a great ASU team because I still kind of want to wait and see. But uh, that, that's a team that's going to be ranked. That's a team that's going to be top 25 team at the end of the season. And that's a team that I also expect to run the South. And, yeah, this whole year will be weird because, I mean, oftentimes when you talk about just a week one win, like the end of the season feels so far out. It feels like an app, like it's so, so far away. And you talk about only week by week. But this, like now that you look at this, the, the schedule, you look ahead, I mean, Arizona – I don't expect them to be very good. Colorado, we saw last night, they were better than I expected. 
but I don't expect them to be very good against a, a USC team. Wazoo, sure, some bright spots, but I, I that team and then UCLA, like the rest of a, of USC schedule, it's just not a very strong schedule. Yes, it's Pac-12 teams, but it's not like, especially when you compare it to, to last year with some of the strong teams in the Pac-12 and the out-of-conference teams that SC is skipping out this year. So, I mean... You get past the big hurdle and you look the rest of the way, and yes, you, you got to be wary of getting ahead of yourself. But I just look at those teams, and it's a very winnable schedule. And this was obviously the biggest chess piece against ASU, and that's a good team that SC beat, even though SC fans have every reason to kind of be a little bit uh, uneasy and frustrated and upset that a lot of those issues are that that happened in in this past game are issues that uh, we're all too familiar with. Right, and we're gonna get into all that. It's it's, it's... We're definitely not dismissing what led up before the comeback, but as we got to start with the outcome in the comeback. And you know, while five and one won't make anyone happy, the reality is they can now even lose that Utah game and still almost be a lock to make the Pac-12 title game. Um, I'm sure I'll eat those words whenever I say anything definitive. It comes back to bite me. But anyways, that's uh-huh. that's how I see it right now. I just want to recap the comeback real fast, and then I want to get your insight on a couple of the moments so just to break it down usc is is just having a incredibly sloppy game three lost fumbles an interception stopped on fourth and one twice third down breakdowns on defense letting Jaden daniels have the whole middle of the field to scramble for first downs it's just everything's going wrong they're down 27 14 and you feel like they're in a pivotal drive when Marquis Step fumbles at the Arizona 23 with six minutes and four seconds left. That's when I tweeted out, that's probably the game right there, and I know a lot of other folks did too. That seemed like the moment of no return. Well, the defense doesn't give in. It holds. It's a quick stop. USC gets it back with 428, and they go down, and they're facing a fourth and 13, and they call what Brew McCoy told us was a freeze play, and you can get more into that with us, but essentially they were intentionally trying to get ASU to jump off sides and I guess make that a little bit more hospitable fourth down. Well, ASU does go off sides, and USC gets a free play out of it, so Keaton Slovis lofts the ball into the end zone. All the receivers just run vertical routes. It goes to Amon Ross St. Brown, who is pretty well covered and leaps and can't really grip it, but he tips it up, and Brew McCoy is just sitting there to grab the ball out of the air. And I thought it was a fortuitous play when I saw it. Brew and Keaton Slovis both said that, no, Amon Ra intentionally tipped that. He knew he couldn't catch it, and he knew that an interception didn't matter because it would come back anyway with the penalty, so he tipped it up to Brew. If that's the case, and we haven't talked to Amon Ra St. Brown, what an incredibly heavy play. But just moving on from there, so that makes it a six-point game. They then recover the onside kick with a true freshman kicker and Brew McCoy making a recovery and then telling us later that he's never repped with the onside team in practice. And he just got thrown in there. Okay, that happens. So USC still has to score again. And they're going down and they're in a fourth and nine. And once again, for the nth time that game, we're like, okay, Game's on the line. Effectively, season is on the line right here, fourth and nine. And Keaton Slovis, who had not played his best game all day, despite the stats, ended up very well. Didn't look as crisp as we saw last season. Fires an absolute dart to Drake London through and over two defenders. London catches the ball essentially with his fingertips in the end zone. 
it was really his game the whole way. Uh, he was the star, and he, he punctuates it right there. And that was the comeback. Let me start generally, Max, and we'll get specific. What was the most improbable part of all that to you? Oh, let's see here. Uh, it's got to be the onside kick, just straight off uh, right. uh, off of mat- mathematics there. Um, and I'll dive into the offensive plays as well. And little side note, as as I'm sure Ryan will get into, I'm going to do a breakdown for this for for you guys uh, offensively X's and O's. I'm, I'm probably going to look at uh, at first thought, unless something changes, I'll probably look at the the touchdown to Drake London and, and kind of break that down. But I'll, I'll give the podcast version of that here as well. I think what was interesting is you mentioned the offside kind of throw it up to Amon Ra and then the tip in. I agree with everything you said. I think uh, first and foremost, I love the call by Graham Harrell. I mean, at that point, you're fourth and thirteen. If you can get a free five yards and get fourth and nine. That does open up the playbook a little bit. Those five yards, it might not sound like like a lot, but the reality is it, it, it is because you can allow guys, uh, Drake London, to sit at the sticks at 10 versus it's a lot harder to do that at 13, 14, 15 yards when you have D linemen with their ears penned back going after your quarterback. So I love the call there, and as a quarterback – when you, co- when you go on a hard count and you go on two, you're looking for that flag. You can see that flag go straight up in the air from the line judge, and you know right away you have a f- free play. When you have a free play, it, it doesn't do you any good throwing short. You, you might as well throw it long. And what was interesting to me, and I, I, if, I don't know if I'll get the chance to talk to Graham or Clay this week, but I would be willing to ask if Brew McCoy ran the right route. Because if you go back and watch that play, on the bottom of the screen – the offensive mind in me, it would have made more sense for Brew to sit right at the right at the sticks rather than run into the end zone six, seven, eight, nine yards deeper and go right to the zone of Amon Ross St. Brown a la a Hail Mary, which ended up working out. But to me, it would have made more sense just strategically. And I know hindsight's twenty twenty, so obviously like I'm I'm wrong by saying this because obviously it worked out for a touchdown, but it would have made more sense if Brew Sat at the sat at the, uh, the 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 first down marker, forced the corner to stay with him, and then give a one on one jump ball to an inside fade by Amon Ross St. Brown. That to me is how strategically I would have thought about it as a as a play caller and just spacing purposes. That puts more pressure on the defense. Obviously, they didn't do that, and Brew ran right to the same spot as Amon Ra for the hail mary purposes. I would be very curious if that is taught. If Brew McCoy maybe have ran the wrong route, or if like like I said, that's the that's the scheme intended. But either way, very heady play. I don't think that's just uh, just some some crap that the that the players are saying in terms of the tip ball. I think Amon Ra purposely did that. Um, he did not get a good jump. The DB is like right on his back, and so I think when he realized he wasn't going to catch it, he goes kind of tip mode, knowing he's got his buddy there. But overall. Just a very headsy play, and it's that situational football that I mean, when you want Keaton to grow to that 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 next level, it's that hard count stuff. You see it with like Aaron Rodgers all the time. Um, that's something I would exp- I would love to see him do kind of on normal down and distance, but late in that scenario, just a very good overall game plan. Um, just as an entire unit, and that execution execution went well and. I won't get long-winded, but the the Drake London pass, the one thing I'll say about that, it was really cool because that route that he scored the touchdown on is the same route or same same idea uh, that Keaton threw 
one of his picks on to Merlin Robinson, that same concept, and he should have thrown two. That they went right through the uh, the linebacker's hands the first time, but to come back a third time and drop an absolute dime when your team needs it the most, that's what great players do, and we saw it right there with Keaton Slovis. I want to go back into both those more in depth, and it's I love what you just said there about uh, wondering if Brew ran the wrong route. We had a debate on the message board on Sunday just about that, and I'm going to give a shout-out to Dylan Bain, our poster, who was convinced that that was not what was supposed to happen. And I promised him I would ask you, take us through a, a quote, freeze play and what, what, you're, what you're going up to the line doing, and are there actual routes called with it? Because what, what Bruce said afterward was that, well, we saw it was a free play, so we all just ran verts, as if like there, there was no actual route he was supposed to run. And they were just kind of freelancing at that point. So, so take me through what a freeze play is. Um, and then if, if you don't get the offsides, is, is you just calling a timeout there? Or, or is there a plan B? So that's what's funny. And we can nerd out cra- like, like crazy right here. Cause, so the, de- the definition of a freeze play, and I was in this offense, what that means is you're calling a play right. But it, when you go on a hard count, everyone in the offense knows that if the defense jumps – it does us no good to run five yard outs and five yard hitch or five yard slants. Not to say that we're going to do that anyways, but it's basically like just go down and if you're Keaton Slovis, look for the guys on the outside. It was Tyler Vaughn's on the top of the screen and Brew McCoy on the bottom of the screen in terms of vertical routes. Give yourself a shot. It doesn't matter if you throw a pick because it's coming back. That's the thought process. The reason that I'm not convinced that that was like the universal play or concept kind of kind of indicated. Is Amon Ra like he, he 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 his 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 stem is very aggressive. Like he's going there no matter what. Like he's he's aiming for the back pylon. Like he's running there. Like it, it, the the his body language. It felt like that was the route he was gonna run either way. And Brew McCoy's body language was a lot more casual off the line of scrimmage. Just kind of like I know I'm gonna get a jump ball. I'm just gearing up to get a rebound and very less crisp. And so I would not be surprised if the route that Amon Ra ran was his called route, freeze play or not. And the route that Brew ran was more freelanced, and that's why they ended up in the same spot. Because like I just said a couple minutes ago, it would have made more sense spacing-wise to have Brew McCoy sit right at the sticks, right at the first down, and have Amon Ra be the vertical so you put more pressure on the secondary. They didn't put more pressure on the secondary. They ran right to the same spot. Obviously, it worked out. But that in those inner dynamics um, are, are kind of the, the the fascinating nerd part about football. And once again, the reason you call that freeze play is to hopefully get a free five yards or a free play because it, the difference between fourth and nine, assuming you get that those free five yards and you don't have the luxury of getting a hail mary touchdown, that at least gives your quarterback, your offense, uh, some more room and, and and a wider playbook to call some plays. Makes sense. Good perspective. And I think fans know this, but just kind of a cool uh, note that obviously Brew McCoy and Amon Ross St. Brown were teammates at Mother Day. And not just teammates, they were very close. And I've talked to both of them about that before. And they were competitive in practice. And, and Amon Ra was, was, the, was the vet. And Brew was the up-and-coming five-star who was always trying to match uh, his older teammate. And they've had a very close bond. And for that to be Brew McCoy's first moment, in a USC uniform, really. I mean, obviously, he played earlier in the game. That, that was his first moment. And for it to be with Amon Ra, that was pretty cool. Let's go to the final, the final touchdown, which, again, this, 
this wasn't Keaton's sharpest game. You mentioned the pick he threw earlier. He should have had a second one that went right through a linebacker's hands and ultimately to Drake London. And I couldn't see it from the press box so much, and I'm still rewatching the game, but a lot of fans were commenting that his he wasn't throwing spirals, his ball was fluttering, he didn't look like he was healthy or something. Um, it didn't come up in our Sunday call with Clay Helton. We'll get a chance to talk to Graham Harrell on Tuesday and get more insight then. But anyways, that last throw was a dime, and it goes right into the career highlight reel of Keaton Slovis so far. I thought his best throw last season, and I'm rambling here, but I'm just going to go with it, was at Arizona State on that 95-yard touchdown to Amon Ra. That was a laser. This was a laser, and as Clay Helton said and Keaton said, it was all about timing. Like He had to do that quick drop and get it there right in that window, and he did. Max, I want you to take me inside that throw first, then we'll get into the play next, but that throw, and how hard of a throw is that? I think he did a quick two- or three-step drop, and then it had to be right there. Yeah, that throw right there is the definition of a throw and a concept that you make as you get older and you just get more comfortable. You're not making that throw your first your first practice at USC as a as a quarterback. That throw just like really is 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 never called upon as a high school quarterback. And then obviously as you mature into college, those windows get tighter and that ball that that, that kind of becomes commonplace. But it's a it's an absolutely tough throw. I mean, Clay said it in his post game presser of just like if he was a second later, that ball is either batted or picked. It's definitely not complete. If he's a second earlier, then uh, the timing's not going to work out. You have to throw it before the receiver breaks, and you're throwing it to green grass. You heard everyone kind of talk about it. There was no safety over the top. You're trying to throw it over the linebacker, but not so much arc where the safety behind him can make a play play on the ball. And in the red zone, those windows are awfully tight. uh, And... We saw Keaton try to get a little greedy early in the game, and and he, he threw a pick as a result. But right there, the timing of that throw is impeccable. And uh, I guess I, I can get into the, the, the concept a little bit, but yet a, yet a, a three-by-one, and there's three receivers to the top of the screen for the viewer's standpoint or to Keaton's right. Uh, Drake London's uh, the inside-most receiver, and he's going to take the middle is what they call it. So he's going to outside release around the linebacker, and if you're an ASU fan, you're pissed. That linebacker did not get hands on Drake London, so he did not make, he did not disrupt the timing at all. He did not break anything up. That's a poor job by that linebacker, especially you know some route like that's going to be coming. I would expect that linebacker to get hands on, hands on. He does not. He gets past the linebacker, and at that point, the only other guy that can make a play is the safety. But the safety has three receivers on that side to worry about. So he is he's wide more towards like Tyler Vaughn's, or at least he's trying to split the difference between Drake, Drake London, who's the inside most slot, and Tyler Vaughn's, who's on the outside. Tyler Vaughn's is running a dig. He actually was open. If Drake's ball becomes a bang-bang, like incompletion, us SC fans are saying, ah, oh, Keaton, don't force it. Just wait, for, go through your progression. Tyler Vaughn's is open because Tyler Vaughn's is wide open. He would have picked up the first down as well. Uh, but anyways, yeah, Keaton trusts his eyes, fits it right in between that safety who's late to make a play, uh, right over a linebacker who they're not, they're not meant to cover the ball. And that's the luxury of having a guy like Drake London is he's big, he's fast. And then during in the red zone, he's tall enough to go up kind of over a linebacker versus a smaller slot might not be able to make that play. Excellent analysis. And you answered my question. I was going to ask, 
if it doesn't go the way it did with the linebacker not disrupting London, where does it go? You say Tyler Vaughn's was open. I, I just can't imagine the cognitive processing required to make multiple reads in the time that Keaton dropped back and released that ball. I, I just assumed that, that Drake, it, was, it was for Drake the whole time. Drake did say afterward, no, it could have gone to anybody. So in that micro fraction of time, what are you looking at and how quickly in your head do you have to know where you're going with it? Yeah, he knows pre-snap that Drake London – that, that's his first read. He knows right away pre-snap if, if he has a favorable look for that route or not. Because, and to get uh, full quarterback mode here, if that's a one-high safety and there's a safety standing in the middle of the ball, he knows right away pre-snap that Drake is not going to be the winner and Drake's going to run off a linebacker and that safety, presumably, to then have Tyler Vaughns on the very outside break inwards with the dig route and kind of replace him right there. And so the thought process is, you know, pre-snap, do I have Drake or do I not? pre-snap he had him and you kind of know right away if, if Drake gets a clean clean release and that safety widens just a little bit that I can I can I can beat him with with timing and beat him with the throw and trust his mechanics and kind of happen right there so to your point it is kind of a split second decision but a lot of the info he's gathering is is pre-snap and uh, the second that he walks up there and gets a, a too high safety look which you're going to get most times in that scenario with it being fourth and long that's why Graham Harrell called the dig route like the, Tyler Vaughn's on the outside running that dig route because that's that route's just very conducive to beating two high safeties. You run an in-breaking in route right in front of that safety. That's where the open grass is. He had So we, we've talked about both those routes. Ironically enough, in the quarterback's mind, you're saying if, if, if the linebackers get soft and kind of drop underneath that, then I got to find my back where he's at right away. And the back was swinging to the left. And ironically, if you go back and watch that film, the back is wide open. I forget who it was. I think it may have been Stephen Carr, but the back's wide open too. Like, I'm not kidding. He probably could have checked it down and ran for the first as well. So, like, literally there's three guys open. Uh, and then the, the, the natural follow-up question is going to be like, well, what the heck was ASU doing? Why were all these guys open? I mentioned the poor job by that uh, by that uh, middle linebacker. The corners on the outside, they weren't really making it that challenging for the re- receivers on the outside. They were pretty soft right there. And then this is where kind of bringing this full circle, a lot of SC fans, or we've talked about it many times over the years, Ryan, is the drop eight element of coverage and what BYU has done. Well, that's the thing is ASU did not drop eight. They rushed four, which means they're dropping seven. And that lack of one defender, that one less defender means there's one less linebacker dropping under coverage, which allows windows to be just a little bit more open. And in the game of football, it's a game of inches. Like, that matters. By ASU rushing four and not rushing three and the USC offensive line doing a good job, that's just one less pass defender out there willing to hold up a window. So that's the whole, like, cat and mouse game of it all. But I love the call by Graham, and that's a concept you'll see time and time again for this USC offense. That's why you're the best, Max. That was awesome. That was awesome. We, we all just got a little bit smarter right there. <laughs> I'm, 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 uh, I'm planning on doing the, a, a little uh, video component. So unless something wildly changes and I, I notice something on film when I rewatch the game a, a third time, that's, uh, that'll be my video component for the week. And uh, I'll break it all down visually so you guys can check no, it that's out. That's great. That's great. Um, just to, to stick with that play for a minute, to convey the margin for error, that the slim margin for error that was there, if you go back and look at the photos, we posted the photo gallery on trojansports.com. 
of the catch. There's some great shots by the Associated Press and, and the USA Today photographer that show Drake catching that ball almost with his fingertips and almost immediately having the defensive back get his hand on top of the ball that could have easily jarred it out, and yet Drake just had an, an excellent grip and clench on that and holds it through the catch. But, man, what a play by him as well. I mean, we talked about Keaton Slovis so much with it, the throw and the read and everything, but uh, Drake London holding on to that ball was just an equally immense component of that play. No doubt. I, I want to tell a quick story about Drake. So I talked to him back in August, a one-on-one conversation, and I was, you know, if you've heard Drake London answer questions in press conference settings, he doesn't say a whole lot. He's pretty humble. Uh, he's very concise in his responses. You don't get a lot of uh, of extra color or perspective. You get you know a straight to the point answer. So I'm talking to him in August, and I we're just talking about last season. And I asked what I meant to be just kind of like an innocuous, fun question, like is is there one play from last year that you go back and watch a lot and think about that kind of sticks with you? And I was I was meaning to be like, is there one like highlight that you're most proud of? And he goes. A play I'm proud of or just a play I think about a lot? I'm like, well, either one. And he goes, it'd be the, the Washington play. And he just tells me how that was like the turning point of his whole season was this this uh, interception Matt Fink threw in his direction late in that Washington game. They were down, I think, two scores at that time. And it really, if you go back and watch the play, it really wasn't, I didn't think, on Drake at all. And also the game really didn't seem to be all that much within USC's reach. But that play just stuck with him because he felt if I make that play at the goal line and score, we're within one and perhaps we come back. And I thought about that after the fact yesterday because it was kind of a similar you know, contested play at the goal line. And a year ago, he doesn't bring it in and it just kind of haunts him. It just sticks with him. And he said, I never want to have that feeling again. And it was, it was just, a, just a really deep and you could tell like it was there's a lot of conviction behind what he was saying. And it just, it's what drove him to I don't know what he did from there to to launch his breakout the rest of that season. But it drove him to not ever be in that situation again. And he's in it on Saturday and this time comes through with the big play and the catch of his career. Yeah, no, and the and the one thing I'll add there, and it's kind of a little side point, and it, it's an interesting topic, but when SC's at their best, in my opinion, it's when they're in 10 personnel, and 10 personnel is one running back and no tight ends, versus 11 personnel is one running back, one tight end, and I mean, all our listeners know the, 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 the receiver unit that SC has, and to me, that's when SC's at its best, is when you have Brew McCoy, Drake London, Amon Ross St. Brown and Tyler Vaughn's on the field. And with all due respect to Eric Cromanoke, he's a good player, but I think these other receivers are great players. And we saw it in that last drive, that two-minute drive. Um, even when even when you don't have a tight end in the game, sometimes it's even easier to run the ball because you're spacing things out. And we saw that with Vavai in the late in the game. And so that's an interesting dynamic to me is I felt like I had seen some pieces in the offseason about the tight end play and, and whatnot, but to me, like, and I know he probably hates this, but Drake London, like, he is your kind of tight end flavor, in my opinion. I don't I don't like when the, when the tight end's in there, like, oh, I guess I shouldn't say that, because it has a place, but I just love when they spread all this defense out. As a, If you're an opposing defensive coordinator, 
every time you have SC has those four receivers in the field, you are more scared than when one of them's off. Like right. I, I'm, I'm. That's when the most fear is in me as an opposing defensive coordinator. And so that's where I go there. It'll be interesting to see. I have a feeling week in and week out, there's going to be a new receiver that's the star of the week. Um, but that's just one little tidbit uh, I wanted to point in there because I think at times when the offense was not doing great and they keep Eric Cromanoak in there to block and they do a run flake and there's only three receivers out there, that's when you saw ASU's defense be able to kind of bend but don't break element uh, rather than some of these other plays when all the, all the weapons are out wide. Um, obviously, I'm talking in extremes. There's, there's exceptions to both, and there's to- total validity of why you want a tight, tight end in the game at certain times. But by and large, that would be my base personnel is that 10 personnel for USC. Definitely. Another great point. I think all the fans would agree with you on that. We're going to add a new segment in this year, and I didn't give you a heads up on this, so this is going to be totally off the top of your head, off the fly. But... Everyone knows that Clay Helton is a big fan of game balls. So we're going to give out some game balls on the podcast each week. And I think that the first week's installment might be pretty obvious and we might have the same picks. But I'm going to let you go first. Offense and defense, who gets your offensive game ball? Who gets your defensive game ball? Interesting. I mean, I could give it to someone unique just to be different, but... I'll give it to Drake London, and we already talked about him a lot. I gotta, I gotta give props where props is due. And the one thing I'll add that we haven't really said about him is, he was my. I think I said this on the podcast with you, Ryan, last week, or maybe I didn't, but I definitely said it in the pregame show uh, with Sean Cody and the guys. Is uh, to me, Drake London was the was a guy that we weren't really talking about all off season. There was a reason you could get really excited about Amon Ross St. Brown. He's moving outside. You're talking about him kind of being a improve his draft stock and all that obviously you're talking about Tyler Vaughn's coming back from the NFL where does he sit in the USC record books whatnot you can get excited about Brew McCoy and Gary Bryant kind of new faces but it felt like Drake London was literally like the fifth receiver you mentioned but I just like Keaton Slovis from year one to year two Drake London I'd expect him to do the same things and not only that one TD catch but we saw early on in the game him catch the ball and run over safeties like I can't, I, I know SC fans know this, but I can't emphasize enough just how unique of a weapon he is at the college ranks to have that big of a receiver as your slot receiver. Like you, you, you don't see that around the country. Either it's a tight end, or you have most times kind of a, a smaller slot receiver. So excited for Drake and, and and excited for his trajectory. And I'll give I'll give him my offensive game ball. What about you? Yeah, it has to be Drake. Uh, game high, eight catches, 125 yards, the game-winning touchdown. But I wrote a column after the game just because it just really s- struck me. I, I know that it's easy to get caught up in, in one game or be a prisoner of the moment, but I thought that he showed Saturday that he's ready to be a star in this offense. No longer just like a, man, what a bonus to have a third receiver like Drake London. Now, I, I'm not going to call him a third receiver anymore. I think he might be an equal focal point with the other guys because he is so versatile. He does so much. I mean, he did did everything yesterday. He showed great hands. He's a mismatch. He was physical. I go back to his his first big catch that set up Stephen Carr's touchdown. It's a third down. He catches the ball as plenty enough for the first down, but is not content at all. Lowers his shoulder, spins, drags defenders, gets all the way down to the two-yard line to set up that first score. He Tried to hurdle somebody later in the game. He just has it all, and I think that he's now to a point where it's not 
it's not uh, Amon Ross St. Brown, Tyler Vaughns, and then you have this great third receiver in Drake London. No, I think that he's on equal footing with those guys and might might just finish with the best season of all of them. We'll see if I'm overreacting to the first game, but I was so impressed. Okay, your defensive game ball, Max. Defensive game ball goes to Marlon Tuipolotu. Um, thought he was productive, liked how he played in the middle, and I think even stepping back a little bit, um, I thought SC definitely missed J2 Fele in that game. I thought they could they, they you, you saw the drop off at the defensive end position, and I, I thought Tremblay and Figueroa played played fine. But it wasn't elite, and I think we saw Jay, like, time and time again, make a couple big plays each game that could really, I mean, uh, that really really set an offense back, and you don't always say that about a defensive tackle, defensive end, but the reason I bring up Marlon is I think he's going to need to be great in in that level, kind of week in and week out, because the depth is not there, especially with Brandon Peely um, not playing that game. The, the the depth we saw maybe last year is just not there this year. And I think they need Marlon to be great for that unit to rise to the next level. And I thought that unit got beat up at times, no, no doubt about it. But I thought Marlon is – without him, I think it could have been a lot worse for that USC defense. And uh, I like the way that he kind of came to play. And then when you look at the linebacker unit, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit too – not a very productive day from the linebacker unit. And sure, you could say maybe the defensive line's got to be better. But at times, I, just, I didn't see linebackers making that many plays. And then that puts a lot of pressure on the defensive line. So Marlon Tupelotu, senior year, he's got to be that dude. Jay's gone. Um, I was pleased with his performance when there was other players across the defense that I think uh, – didn't have bad games, but were not elite when, uh, when, I think, uh, when I think they can be. Yeah, he was clearly the most impactful player. Eight tackles, two tackles for loss, a sack. He just seemed to be everywhere and just had great closing speed. To if there was a tackle to be made anywhere near him, boom, he was on it like that. So very impressed. I thought Nick Figueroa had a couple nice plays. Yeah, I know he had a, a great stop on third down to end one pivotal drive, but I'm still going back through the tape, so I I don't have a evaluation on his overall game. We're going to go more to the defense, but I have to get back to the one last offensive point, which was the questions about Keaton's arm. Uh, I know just you know, it was all over our message board. Is, is Keaton all right? He's, he's not throwing spirals. Did you see anything that would alarm you uh, early in that game about Keaton, or you think it was just maybe uh, rust or the weather or, or anything else? Yeah, it's funny you mention that because when you texted me earlier today that we were going to talk about that, I, I, I didn't really think of that as a point, but it's funny. You mentioned it, and then when I was walking out of the stadium or I walking at halftime, Jordan Moore, who does the radio for USC, like he mentioned it. He's like, are you seeing that? The ball seems to be coming out of his hands weird. And to me, usually, like that's right up my alley. Like That's the stuff I notice. I didn't notice anything in terms of the, like, the, the, like the way the ball was coming out of his hands. But here's what I will say. When the rain comes out, it impacts quarterbacks uh, differently. Every quarterback's different. Some quarterbacks, it doesn't phase them at all. Guys like Sam Darnold and Cody Kessler, they were two of the best that I had ever played with or trained with at throwing the football in the rain. It just, and it really wasn't even hand size for those guys. Like, Darnold doesn't have big hands. It's just kind of the way they grip the ball and their motion. They were able to do it. Keaton Slovis, I don't know how he is. I've never seen him throw in the rain like that. And that was a wet field. It was it was on and off, but it was dumping there when it was raining early in the game. So wouldn't be surprised if it's a wet ball. 
people taking it a step further and saying, ooh, is his arm okay, like concerns about the Holiday Bowl. I don't really buy that. I feel like we would have heard something of that. I also feel like Graham Harrell and Clay Helton, you just wouldn't put a quarterback out there if his arm was truly having like those issues. You also wouldn't throw the ball nearly 50 times in the game. So I don't go that far, but I do buy that something may have potentially been off because of the weather. Because when you do, now that someone mentions it to you, if you go back and look, he did throw a decent amount of ducks, which uh, we're not used to him, him doing. Yeah, I, I didn't see it myself from the press box just because we don't have the best angle on that. And I talked to other reporters, and it was the same thing. Like They were seeing it on Twitter, but they couldn't see it with their eyes. I agree with you. I, I don't think that there's any injury concern whatsoever because the praise out of the preseason camp was so consistent and strong, not only from the coaches, but from the players. I think it was Elijah Griffin who said he's an NFL quarterback playing in college right now and, like, and just raving about his ball placement and everything else. You wouldn't get an across-the-board concerted review like that if it wasn't true or if he was uh, hiding some injury in the preseason. So I'm sure he's fine. Uh, finishes the game with 381 yards, two touchdowns, the one pick, and a program record 40 completions. So even if it didn't look great for a lot of the game, it turned out on the stat sheet to be a fine performance for Keaton Slovis. All right, Max, let's turn it over to the defense. Obviously, storyline for this whole season the thing that i was most intrigued by entering this game i wrote a big feature on tyler lando on friday about his background his path to this point how the usc opportunity came about and i would encourage anyone who didn't see that to go to trojansports.com and read that i had a half hour one-on-one with todd and talked to his high school coach and uh, one of his linebackers at utah state and just got really in depth with it so I've been very intrigued by his impact this year, and I know that the first game didn't wow a lot of people. Give me your breakdown of the defense. What stood out to you about his scheme and just overall performance? Yeah, I think what stood out is the fact that like nothing stood out. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is, and I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm probably missing something and I'll have to go back and watch the film, but from a, from a bird's eye view, the defense didn't look that much different with Todd under Clancy. I mean, the reality is you're getting exotic blitzes on third down. You're mixing up fronts at times. You're, you're, you're trusting your, your secondary and trying to have your safeties around the ball to make some tackles. Like, those are things that were still or were key points with, uh, with Clancy a year ago. And then the, the, the pitfalls of it were also like concerns a year ago. I mean, the, the rushing in your lanes on third and long, like the reality, like third and long as that for the USC defense is like an area of concern is like absolutely crazy. That should never be a thing with a defense third, third and long. That's, that should be your favorite scenario as a defense ever. But over the past couple of years, like it really hasn't been for SC. They're the breakdown in pass rush lanes. Like that's, that's nothing different. I think the tackling, Yes, once again, very, very, uh, very similar a year ago. I do have a soft spot there a little bit because the reality is they just haven't practiced as much uh, over the past year. But as I say that, I know SC fans are going to be like, oh, you got to get physical in practice. We just don't know. We're not around the practice, so we can't speak on that. I will say a lot of the fumble issues on both teams – for the running for the runners, I would not be surprised if that is a byproduct of COVID because they just haven't been hit that much. And so 
that's kind of getting into the weeds a little bit. But back to the defense, I think when you look at each position group, uh, we talked about Marlon. Drake Jackson, you didn't really say his name much uh, that, that game. And I was expecting big things from him. I thought he was going to get a couple sacks. I was excited to see the, the, the progression he made. I don't want to jump the gun, but his weight loss is an interesting factor to me because... I think it was, he wasn't pushing guys around. And credit ASU's offensive line. They had some grad transfers. They have some other guys. I'm going to wait on this take for a few weeks to really see. But a little concerned that we didn't see more of Drake Jackson because, I mean, we saw how incredible his first year was. I mean, to, to, ju- to make that huge jump and become an elite player in year two, um, that, that's something I want to see we didn't see so far. I mentioned the linebacker position. I felt like EA looked a lot very similar to, to a year ago. When he's in there, he can make any play you want, but you get him running side to side a little bit. He missed some of those some, some of those running back tackles, and then it, it looked like uh, we mentioned the, the, the blitzing and his kind of rush lanes. He didn't get home, and so kind of waiting and seeing there. That other linebacker spot with Raylan Goforth and Kanai Malga, I think they combined for like one tackle. Um, so obviously very minimal production there. And then the safety, a lot of familiar faces. Love the corner play. Thought Chris Steele did some good things, some penalties early on. But Elijah Griffin, you can tell they're trusting him a lot. I'm good with that group. And then the safeties, at times, Talanoa struggled to fit with some of those bubble screens and whatnot. But by and large, I'm cool with the safety play. And ultimately, just kind of want to see more more out of that linebacker unit which is kind of on a on a thread with the defensive line as well. Yeah, um, Raylan early on got got fooled by a misdirection uh, fake handoff, and that sprung Jaden Daniels for his thirty eight yard scramble uh, in the first quarter. So it wasn't the breakout game we were expecting from him. I'll agree with EA. Same thing. To your point on Drake Jackson, so I did a story in the last week about his weight loss. He's down anywhere from twenty to twenty five pounds, depending on who you ask. And I talked to his dad about it. And I said, was that something that the coaching staff asked him to do? He said, no. He said he, he actually got sick for a while and lost like 15 pounds and, and liked how he looked. So he just kept, he kept uh, I guess, dieting and, and working out. And his dad said, I, I, I told him, um, if you don't have the same season you had last year, that, that weight's coming back on. Because to, to be, a, uh, I think he said, uh, to, to be a guy at 275 who runs a 4'6", is possibly more impressive than a guy at 250 who runs a 4.5. And just what he was able to do with exactly. that size and be as agile as he was. Um, so it's an interesting thing to follow this year, and we'll see what happens. I asked Tyler Orlando about it last week, if, if it affected his uh, new role positively or negatively. And, and he said, oh, no, I thought he was way too big last year just looking at the tape. He's much better at this size. So he was at least singing the, the tune that, he liked what he saw, but we'll see how it goes. So it sounds like to me, if there's one uh, prevailing concern that you have off this game, it's the linebacker play. Am I right? Um, yes, but and the reason I'm hesitating is it's kind of to me it's like hand in hand. It's just that front seven unit because you can't always tell who's at fault, and at times the defensive line's getting washed down and it puts pressure on the linebackers unit. But I would just say. I guess it's 1A and 1B. Linebackers 1A, defensive uh, ends uh, 1B. Not good. Yeah. <laughs> Not good to feel bad about both those groups. Um, how much do you think – how much more do you think we see from this defense as the weeks go on? You know, the old cliche. We, yeah. 
we didn't want to overburden them and and it was a simpler game plan maybe is, is that possible yeah definitely and this is where i'm make the point come full circle with kind of one of my early points is this ASU team, it's a good team. Those running backs that ASU has, those guys are going to be around for a while. Those are good backs. This offensive line for ASU, those guys look the part. Like, And then Jaden Daniels, like, what's his MO? His MO is his ability to kind of create with his legs and, and do some things there. So a lot of those faults that I'm kind of getting on the SC team for, like that's ASU's strength. ASU is a good team, so it's got you almost got to kind of – take it with a grain of salt a little bit, but I, I would expect exactly what you said. I would expect a, or, uh, USC to get after Arizona and us potentially a week from now being like, oh, wow, what a, what a, what a new game, all, all that type of stuff. Um, but the reality is a lot of these faces are guys that we have seen, and you would have expected that growth and that development on an individual level kind of this offseason because a lot of those guys are familiar. It will be interesting to see as the weeks go on, how do these guys get used to Todd Orlando's uh, defense? Do they get used to this scheme? Do some of these blitzes start hitting home? Um, but it's kind of the the optimist the optimistic point of view is, all right, it's only week one. This is to be expected. The pessimistic view is like, hey, we recognize a lot of these guys. A lot of these guys we've seen for multiple, multiple times. If they haven't fixed things now, what's going to change? And uh, as we've talked about, I think we both kind of align with the optimistic point of view. It's only week one. You faced a really good team. It's been a weird off season. A lot of these guys can grow uh, grow into their roles, and uh, and they're going to need to if, uh, if SC uh, has a chance of winning the South and winning the Pac-12. Yeah, I, I, definitely, I definitely bought into the optimistic view on the linebackers just because not only were we hearing it from the coaches and – Clay Helton was all in on on hyping up EA and just what a great camp he had. He's the one guy that I can't wait to see play. He's playing at another level. So there was that, but also it made sense to me. And the whole thing about the preseason is parsing what you hear and and trying to decide what's legitimate and what's overhyped. And without seeing practice, that's all you can do. But with EA, it added up. I just just thought that Tyler Orlando – with his history of elevating linebackers, connect with that guy and bring the best out of him. And it still might happen. It's just one game. You mentioned Brandon Peely earlier. Let me just give an update for those who who haven't heard. He had surgery to repair a broken middle finger. Had pins put in his finger, and there was no timeline given for his return. Obviously, a, a key loss, especially in light of Tufeli not being here. So hopefully that's not a, a bulk of the season kind of thing and just a couple weeks thing, but we don't know yet. Okay, we should probably get into the, the matchup this week a little bit. It's not the juiciest matchup. USC goes to Arizona. Arizona did not play last week because they were supposed to be in Salt Lake City and Utah had to cancel due to COVID cases. Again, that was on the Utah end, not the Arizona end. But as a result, we don't have anything to work off of in evaluating this Arizona Wildcats team. All we know is that they were a four-win team last year. And they lost J.J. Taylor, their running back. And they have a young quarterback in Grant Gunnell who played against USC last year and was fine. And that's what we know. Uh, their defense was the worst in the Pac-12 last year in both points and yards allowed. They bring a lot of guys back, so they're hoping that experience will make a difference. But this is obviously a game to me that's more about USC than it is about Arizona. This is about USC getting right and taking care of the football and being sharper and crisper in all areas and not so much about, oh, this part of the matchup really worries you. 
Max, what is your overall take on this matchup and Arizona as a football team? Yeah, I think big picture. Um, this is an Arizona team that, I mean, someone's been there for a little while, but it feels like they're still in kind of rebuild mode. The reality is this is not an elite football team. There's a big difference between ASU and Arizona. I still need to dive in and do my full breakdown, but just knowing what the, the pieces they have coming back and kind of what they've done, this is, a, this is a game that SC should 100% take care of business. A couple of little side factors is, like you referenced, Ryan, Arizona didn't play this past week, so this is going to be their first game. USC had this wild and crazy first game against a great opponent, learned a, a lot of uh, – had to take on a bunch of situational football uh, scenarios, got a lot of experience. That should be a huge advantage for SC as they take on Arizona. Another little side point, and uh, it'd be interesting, SC fans, be sure to follow this, but the next game for SC is Utah, which is the other team you just referenced. And we'll see if Utah plays this week. It sounds like things are, are, are pretty, pretty, pretty rough in the state of Utah. And if that's the case, and if Utah doesn't play this Saturday, which hopefully that, that things get taken care of and, and Utah can play UCLA, but if they don't, then that means that week three for SC, they'd be matching up against a Utah team who has not played yet and who hopefully has been on as strict of quarantine lockdown guidelines as anyone. So you, for, you in, conceptually, you would play that game because they would have been so careful with their lockdown procedures because one of the factors it would not surprise me if we fast forward here five or six weeks and just sheer were you able to get on the field if that matters when you talk about a school like utah and cal and washington already lost a game arizona already lost a, or not played a game like just Making sure SC plays these football games is kind of the point I'm trying to make there. So interesting tidbits there. But to circle back to Arizona, this is the game USC should take care of business. It's a midday kickoff. Um, Gunnell, he's a capable quarterback, but nothing groundbreaking at all. A lot of these nuances that I think SC um, may have struggled with week one, I would expect them to uh, to shear up in week two and take care of business. USC has had great success running the ball against Arizona in the last couple of years, and they clearly made a commitment this past week to establish that run. And it sounds like that's going to be uh, consistent moving forward. So I would expect a big ground game from the Trojans and get all those backs a chance to eat a little bit on Saturday. I'd like to always acknowledge when I'm wrong. I think it's important for credibility and accountability. We're, we're big on accountability here at TrojanSports.com. I really liked the Kevin Sumlin hire for Arizona when it happened. I thought, oh, that's a great move for them. That's going to work out. I did not like the Herm Edwards hire for Arizona State and think that you can now say that I was probably wrong on both of those. Although I'll, I'll keep some Sumlin stock. I don't, you know. It, he had he had some nice uh, nice seasons in the past, building his, his career up, but it has not worked in Arizona. And after what I saw this last weekend, I think Arizona State is going to be a better team than I expected. I kind of thought that the ceiling with Herm Edwards would be what they were last year, maybe you know an, an eight win team, a seven eight win team, good not great, uh, but I was really impressed, and I think they're they're still on their ascent under him and i am willing to now say that i was wrong in my criticism of the herm edwards hire i love that i love that I I'll, <laughs> no I, I like it i like it i'll uh the one other point i want to touch on because we kind of 
touched on every single position group outside of the offensive line. So want to want to just make a couple points there. It was oh, funny. Good. In, in, good. Yeah. Good. In, in good. last week's uh, in last week's podcast, we talked about kind of my concern over both tackle positions. And I would say, by and large, the tackles, mm-hmm. I, I was I was cool with their performance. I thought Elijah Vera Tucker held it down at left tackle. There's walking into the rest of the year. There's no concern for me there. Jalen McKenzie at right tackle, I need to go back, back and, and watch his film, but nothing stuck out to me poor there. But what did stick out to me, and this is, I guess, where I was wrong, is I thought the, the interior of the USC offensive line, like that would be... Where the bread, uh, the, where the bread was buttered, and that would kind of be the, the 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 group that was rock solid. You knew what you were going to get interior wise. Liam Jimmins is uh, he was the new face, but I mean, strong as an ox. You heard nothing but great things. But the reality is, ASU beat up the interior of the USC offensive line. You saw it often. Brett Nealon, I think he's he's banged up with an ankle this week, so it'll be interesting to follow there. And granted, Lole, Jermaine Lole, ASU's defensive tackle, he's he's legit. He's uh, an all-conference Pac-12 type player. He He's legit. But even the other guys, they really got after the interior of the offensive line. And moving forward, does that end up being the Achilles heel of USC where they're not able to run uh, they were able to run in the last drive with Vivai and make some things happen, but it was even though the stats were were really good in that game for SC. As a as a fan, you didn't necessarily get the the feeling that 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 that, that the run game was really dominant. And so that interior of the offensive line, I would expect them to have a chip chip on their shoulder against Arizona, an Arizona team that's not going to have the boys up front that ASU has uh, to really try to to try to take the next step there because that's a group that's. Uh, that is an area of concern for me moving forward when you talk about Pac-12 championships, Pac-12 South championships, is uh, is whether or not that offensive line can open up holes. So just wanted to touch on that group as well. No, it's definitely a concern. I, th- I think that uh, fans were underwhelmed by what they saw Saturday, and I would just caution not to swing too far the other direction based on this week because, again, the last two two years against Arizona, they've run at will – and yet that has not been reflective of the season overall. They had 200 rushing yards last year. They had well more than that in 2018, and it was kind of an outlier for the rest of the season. So even if things go great there this week, understand that that's probably still in the area that is not going to be one of the stoutest in the Pac-12. All right, Max, I know that we um, it's early in the week. We used to do predictions later in the week, but – this is our this is our chance, and I'm going to get you on record with your game prediction, and then I'm going to reserve the right to change mine later on, but uh, I'll also give one now too. So your prediction for USC Arizona? I'm going 48-10 USC. Um, I think it's going to be a blowout. I think this SC team. I'm hoping that this ASU win was kind of like just allows everyone to take a deep breath, right? You hype up this week one game so much. You, you you escape with a win. You you understand the the significance of that win, and I hope they can just get back and just dominate teams. And a lot, I think every position group is going to look at that film and say, "Man, we left some yards on the on the table there, or we left that play on the table, or why do we do that?" And I think collectively, with each position group feeling that way, the SC team is going to come together, respond in a big way, and I have a feeling this offense is going to be a well oiled machine. One other point I didn't really necessarily touch on is we didn't see USC attack the outside lanes with the outside receivers that much in this ballgame. You saw a lot of Drake London over the middle. You saw a lot of over routes, intermediate routes. You saw some arrow routes by by Drake London and whatnot. 
but you didn't see a lot of vertical concepts down the field with like just straight go balls by Tyler Vons or Amon Ross St. Brown. You didn't see that. And usually if you don't see that, you're going to see a lot of hitches because that means the secondary scared whatnot. And you didn't really see either of those. And I think credit ASU secondary, and that's going to be the best secondary that, that USC faces all, all regular season long. So credit that group. But I would expect them to get back to just putting sheer pressure on corners and forcing them to tackle and cover in space. I'd expect a big game by Amon Ra and Tyler Vons uh, in, in this upcoming ballgame. I like it. I'm pretty close to you on the prediction. I'm going to go... USC 45 to 17 and I'll just throw a final point in on my end obviously a very flawed performance last week a lot of very very real and fair criticisms and concerns and they were so close to to not winning that game and having this season like I said be a a total loss but they won and I think it we have to not just overlook the fact that this team uh, did you know stick together and didn't give in really at the at the peak of adversity in that game and um, all, all those cliches and intangibles you throw out there, but it's, it says something about uh, either the players in the field or their willingness to play for their coaches that they found a way to stick in that game and come back and maybe there point. is something in that to extrapolate and build on moving forward. Maybe there's not. Maybe it's just a, a weird a weird game. But I think that there has to be some credit for the fact that you pull off a seemingly improbable upset. I love it. It's a good point. All right. I think we covered it all, Max. I think we did it. That was a terrific breakdown from you on the key moments. And again, as Max teased on Wednesdays, later in the day, we're going to roll out his kind of a, a visual uh, film room, whiteboard breakdown kind of thing where he gets to put his analyst cap on for you and, and really show you what happened and, and go in depth on, on things from each game each week. So looking forward to that on Wednesdays. And you and I will talk again next week, breaking down the Arizona game, looking ahead to hopefully a game in Salt Lake City. Fired up for it. Should be fun. Thanks, Ryan. All right. See you, Max.